Yes. Let it linger a little longer. Faith in a fresh vibe. I am Rohadian. That's Drew Brown hymns for the architect on the intro and outros for this entire season on deconstruction. Welcome, friends. Thanks so much for being here, and I hope that this season on deconstruction has been one that has given you some hope, given you some answers, or at least it's affirmed you in the space and place that you're in. In this episode, I invite David Hayward, another fellow Canadian, one of the architects, the father of hashtag deconstruction. Well, who knows? He won't claim it, but we'll bestow it. Coming at you from Treaty 7 lands here in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. Let's jump into this episode. Welcome, David. I'm so excited to have another Canadian. I have a lot of Canadians on on this podcast because I try to draw in voices that people have never heard of. Whereas your yeah. voice, maybe folks across the wide land of internet ha- have not heard your voice, but they've seen yeah. your art. So thanks so yeah. much to be, thanks so much for coming and joining us on the show. Yeah, yeah it's my pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me on. Just a quick introduction. Who are you? And what lands are you currently situated on? Yeah, so my name's David Hayward. Um, most people don't know who that is, but some of you might know who the Naked Pastor is. Um, that's my website. Naked Pastor was a blog, cartoonist, artist, writer, whatever. Um, used to be in the ministry, left the ministry. Do I do Naked Pastor full time now? And um, so I've moved out from pastoring a local church to. The world is my parish. (laughs) Um, um, We're situated on Mi'kmaq land here in uh, New Brunswick, uh, this part of New Brunswick anyway. And um, yeah, so that's, uh, I I live near St. John in a town called Quispamsis, which is a Mi'kmaq name. So uh, I think it means land of many rivers and um, which indeed it is. So that's who I am and where I live. I want to draw in the origin story of the naked pastor mm-hmm. and also the story of both why and also the connection to how this venture gave you life. Well, um, I started blogging back in 2004, I think it was, and I just had the name davidhayward.ca or something boring like that. Um, but, uh, I decided, you know what, I'm, there were a lot of pastor bloggers out there. I was a pastor at the time of a vineyard church, um, here in near St. John. And I decided to start blogging and just writing about my experiences as a pastor, but I wanted my slant to be, I was going to be super honest and upfront and raw and real and authentic and vulnerable and transparent about the ministry. I wanted people to see behind the curtain what really goes on in the ministry. Uh, not just, you know, the church growth, but the loss of people, not only the wonderful music, but the horrible music, not only the <laughs> great teaching, but the people who get angry at you for what you teach and mm. not only the fellowship, but the conflict and, you know, everything. I wanted to sh- show them everything. So that's why I chose the name Naked Pastor. Basically, just means me not adorning 
what I'm saying with any frills or any icing. It's just going to be the raw me as a, as a pastor. So naked pastor. And, you know, I've always been a painter uh, and draw. I drew ever since I can remember. Mm-hmm. I grew up, my dad was an artist. And so um, I just thought one day, you know, I was, I've been writing in my blog and thought, you know, why don't I just um, share some of my art? And so I was doing that. And then one day, I, like, I really like a good cartoon. Uh, I really love the New Yorker cartoons where it's usually one frame. Yeah. And I thought, let me see if I can try that. I'm going to try that because yeah. I can draw. Let me see if I can convey yeah. some yeah. ideas through a cartoon. And um, I, I said, I'll, I'll try one a day until I run out of ideas. I thought I'd last maybe a month. Yeah. And so here it is uh, <laughs> 17 years later and I'm yeah. still drawing cartoons and having a ball. No shortage and, of and the reason why, yeah, the reason why I do it is because it just, uh, it works. It works for me. I'm happy and having fun and it works for others. You know, they get what I'm saying in a split second rather than having to read a thousand words. And Oh yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I, I like the, the power, the effectiveness, the impact uh, that it has out there. So that's why I do it. How would you describe or what was the catalyst to draw you into into that posture of vulnerability to share the behind the scenes? What was the reason behind doing that? I've always been a person who appreciates uh, authenticity, um, honesty. I've always that's I think that's one of my primary drives Mm -hmm. in my own life is to be me. And to feel free to be me, uh, authentically me, love me or leave me, kind of me. That I think re- was reflected in the way I, I preached and taught and um, facilitated community in the church. And you know, so I, I just encourage people: Hey, I want you to accept me as I am. I accept you as you are. We accept ourselves as we are. Um, and let's learn how to do community like that. And to me, that just makes for a far more dynamic and healthy kind of um, personal life as well as community life. So that's why I I uh, stri- strive for authenticity and, and try to encourage it in others and provide safe space for that to happen. I want to come back at, uh, later on to the story of your vineyard connections and, and mm-hmm. it's partially my story as well. But before we get there, you started to write, you started to create 2004. That's around the time, and we didn't call it this, a wave of deconstruction or challenge to the evangelical foundations was starting to emerge with the likes of writers like Brian McLaren. And you probably had the emergence of Rob Bell around that time. Yes. That was the start of what we have today in the deconstruction, I use the term now loosely, movement. Did you see yourself today, looking back to 2004, as almost one of the predecessors to ex-evangelical or deconstruction that we see today? Well, to be honest, like, like Brian McLaren and others of that ilk, 
uh, were all a part of what was called at that time the emergent movement. Yeah. Um, and then it it blew up. Itself it imploded. Everybody scattered everywhere. The the attempt to organize um, what people were experiencing as a movement was a mistake. Um, and to yeah try to organize it and provide leadership to it and all that I think was um, misdirected. Um, now, I started reading um, Derrida, the French philosopher, who actually invented the word deconstruction as a method of examining reading texts that um, everything has to be questioned. Uh, nothing can be trusted. Not, there can't be, you can't trust a text for objective truth and so on because there's so many factors at play. For example, the, the writer's bias biases, um, uh, the, the culture, the writers in biases, the transmission, the reception, our own biases as we read the text and, and, and so on and so forth. So when I was reading that, it was about 2008 when I actually first used the word deconstruction to refer to me. I, I thought it was a great word for, uh, to describe what I was experiencing. And that was me questioning everything, not just, you know, was it a fish or a whale that knows uh, Jonah was swallowed by, but the, the Bible, the inspiration itself, uh, uh, theology all the way down to, um, you know, the existence of God or, you know, everything was being questioned. And uh, Derrida provided a word for me to borrow um, called deconstruction. Then around that time, the vineyard provided um, a workshop out here uh, in the Maritimes that I attended. And there were about eight of us that went uh, and it was on critiquing uh, different hermeneutical approaches to the Bible. And one of them was deconstruction. And the whole point of the uh, workshop was to convince us that this was all wrong and that there is actually the Bible can be uh, embraced as objectively true. I actually left that workshop a deconstruction. Like I really, it really, I was, I was converted to the idea of deconstruction. And that's when I really started using the word all the time. Um, that was in 2009. Yeah. And um, people were even calling me a deconstructionist as an insult. I took it as a compliment. Um, and um, I don't know, I just started using the word all the time. I don't know if I'm the one who actually started it, but um, you know, I'm not gonna fight anybody over it. Yeah. But that's around the time when we, we really started talking about it. It was in 2000, I left the ministry in 2010. Then in 2012, I launched an online community for people deconstructing uh, called The Lasting Supper. And that's what it was about, um, deconstruction. And um, it's still going to this day, actually. And uh, so, yeah, I think it, it became um, an idea uh, that people, a word that people could use to describe the, the serious questioning of their beliefs and everything around it. That, that, I mean, that's what deconstruction means. It's, it's like unconstructing, right? It's like taking something apart. And uh, I think that's what uh, what a lot of people were experiencing, starting to dismantle their beliefs and faith and spirituality and religion, you know, relationship to the church, everything. 
listeners will be thrilled to know that David Hayward, father of deconstruction, creator of the oh. hashtag itself, and I don't know. Yeah, you I, should, I didn't uh, create the it. hashtag. No, I didn't create oh. the hashtag. I, I, I'm I'm only saying I I I do remember writing in, and I actually went back and looked at my blog to see in 2008 was the first time I used the word. 2009, I started using it all the time. To the point of in 2010, I left the ministry because of all that stuff. And um, I went to teach in a university for a couple of years. And then I decided to make Naked Pastor go uh, go full time, which included uh, launching an online community for people who are deconstructing. So that, at the, but that's when everybody was starting to, to um, talk this way. You know what I mean? Questioning their beliefs and and so on, to the point where I even wrote a book called Questions Are the Answer. And um, I claim it's a healthy way of living. You know, I grew up that that was not the case. I was taught that that was not the case. Questions weren't the answer. Questions were the enemy. And um, so I tried to turn that around for the benefit of people who are experiencing the deconstruction of their beliefs. I think one of the criticisms of deconstruction in that vein of questioning truths and it's always a matter of whose truth yes but questioning truths and and the critique of of the of Derrida and other postmodern thinkers is you can deconstruct your way all the way to the abyss and it can leave people uh, facing uh, uh, nothingness you you give it all away or you work yourself out completely uh, versus you rebuild into something new. Now, I, I've made a leap there. Mm-hmm. But what do you do? Because you have, a, can I use the term parish? It's online, but you, Last Supper, would you consider that the your parish? I'd call the Lasting Supper my small group. <laughs> the small group, okay. Um, I call yeah, yeah. I call the world my parish because I'm online and I'm, you know, it's just everywhere around the world. My naked pastor cartoons are being translated. I give people permission every week in some country around the world to yes. have the freedom to translate my cartoons, and mm-hmm. it's it's wonderful to see. So, well, let's talk about that. Yeah, I often use the story of Jonah when he was being thrown overboard. We know how the story turns out. So it's hard to put yourself in Jonah's shoes or sandals or whatever the case may be to realize that this was the end. It was over. Hmm. And um, I think it's a, a really apt illustration to to use to talk about how um, there are times in our lives when we really are facing the abyss. There does not seem to be uh, a way through that. It's a total, total darkness. It's the end. I, I, I claim too that I think that's, uh, would be uh, a really good way to view the death of Jesus, that um, it really was 
that it's over. This yeah. we're finished. You know, it's done. And um, I think when we are entering into this kind of uh, very mature phase of our spiritual growth, you have to experience that. Mm-hmm. That's a that's a part of the journey. Now, it's it's kind of like we know the how the story of Jonah worked out. We know how the story of Jesus worked out in in the writing in the stories itself. We know how it it all turns out. Um, but put yourself in their place. You don't know. For Jonah, it's over. He's being thrown overboard. Um, for Jesus, it's over. He's dying on the cross. It's done. It's finished. And and I think, uh, like I was about to say, the the a really mature, wise part of our spiritual journey is we need to experience that. I'm finished. Is I'm I'm done. I'm. It's over. It's completely dark. I can see no way through this. Um, Saint John of the Cross. He wrote a whole poem on it, the Dark Night of the Soul. Right, and and it has to be that dark, hopeless feeling. I think so. That's why I encourage so many people who are deconstructing, questioning their beliefs, saying, please tell me I can, I'm still going to have God when this is over, or I'm still going to have my friend Jesus or whatever. I'm, I'm sorry. I can't help you. <laughs> I can't help you with that. Like, I don't know. And, and neither do you. And it's very, very scary. But um, I assure you, if you stick to it, you know, unless a seed dies, right? And and it literally has to die. And and so that's that's what I feel my one of my major part is in um in helping people through the deconstructing is to have that courage to stick to it, even when it gets that dark and scary. I think uh, scary is the operative word there. It is scary. When you face the abyss, that, that that's scary. There's grief. There's loss. There yes. are all these things. Yes. Yes. And knowing that there's no formula to this, there's no answer. Mm-hmm. How would you describe both your experience and maybe in, in in those of others catalysts unto the new thing? What do those even look like? How do how do we give that? name or substance assume again i'm making an assumption here that there are possibilities for a new thing some people just need to go and leave it all behind but in your uh, experience and in in your ministry and through the stories and pieces that you see what Uh are some of those catalysts onto the new thing if we were to give it name and and substance for those who are in that space of fear or loneliness or despair what might a glimmer a shard of light look like a lot of people say okay you talk a lot about deconstructing but but what about reconstructing i want to reconstruct there needs to be a reconstruction i'm like no Mm -hmm. i i don't talk about reconstruction for me why build another set of beliefs that you're going only going to have to deconstruct later like i said deconstruction Nothing is shown mercy. Everything is questioned. It, that has to be the way it is. Um, so that I, I do see it, though. I'm not judging people for doing it. I've seen it happen with friends of mine who get to a point in the deconstruction of their beliefs 
everything's going great. And then they freak out because it is terribly scary and dark and lonely. And um, it feels very foreign. You don't know what to expect. There is a lot of grief. There's a lot of loss. And they revert back mm. to a, a previous, even a pre-previous mm. stage of, of belief where they're in no danger of questioning their beliefs anymore. Safe. And, yeah. So I encourage people just to stick. I'm an open concept kind of guy. When we bought this house, it was chopped up in a whole bunch of little rooms. And I came in and I saw all the rooms taken out. I saw it in my mind and all the walls taken out and a big open concept place. And because I love space, I love openness and I don't like things divided up and chopped up. And um, that's the way I think it, a healthy way to approach deconstruction is you're tearing things away, tearing things down, uh, unconstructing, dismantling, eroding all those things so that you can enjoy the space and the openness. It's like planting a, it's like planting a tomato plant. You, you plant a seed, you, you, you know, soften up the soil, you add compost, manure, fertilizer, you remove rocks and sticks, you continue to weed, you provide water, you provide sun, you never touch the seed itself. <clears throat> you just give it the conditions and the space and tomatoes will grow. You don't have to go out to that plant and pull on the little blossoms or squeeze the plant to squeeze out the tomatoes. It'll happen. It just happens when it's given the space. And that's what I found with people who are deconstructing. Just give them the space. Don't try to direct them. Don't try to correct them. Don't try to, you know, provide false hope or securities. Provided the conditions and the space, they will come to a place of fruitfulness and joy even. Um, I know I have. And uh, I've seen it in so many other people too, but you have to, you have to kind of embrace that mysterious um, way of life of questioning everything and being able to live comfortably in the mystery. I like that word, dwell in the mystery, sit in the mystery. What are the inputs to use to stick with the tomatoes? Okay. To stick with the tomato metaphors, what would be some of the inputs? Because there are still some pieces that you're contributing here in cultivating. Mm -hmm. What do those look like in, in a process of deconstruction, knowing every everyone's story is unique? Are there yeah. themes? Well, everybody, yeah, like everybody's journey is unique. I appreciate when I'm reading or listening to something or experiencing something, when something resonates with what I feel is true. I haven't read theology in a long time, um, although I, I am reading a, a, a new biography of Karl Barth right now, which is very interesting um, because it's been it's been uh, published since uh, some private letters of his were released, revealing that he had a full-on affair with his personal assistant. So I'm reading that, which is profoundly interesting. He's my favorite theologian, and I. I think he always will be because I really think he was on to something profound. But where I find uh, a, a lot of resonation uh, is in um, reading mystical theologians or, or writers, uh, Meister Eckhart, for example, 
um, the cloud of unknowing, you know, St. Teresa of Avila, you know, and so on, um, the Desert Fathers, but also uh, philosophy, like including a living philosopher, Slavoj Žižek, um, and uh, from, from Slovenia, and um, Hegel and others, and then um, quantum physics, uh, Carlo Rovelli, a living um, uh, um, quantum physicist who is writing some incredible work. So, you know, when you, you read, when I'm reading in those groups, like the mystics or the physicists or the philosophers or, you know, it, that's where, or artists, for example, I, I, I feel something resonating with what is true. And um, so that's where I'm finding my kind of nourishment and food right now and sunlight and water and mm -hmm. everything mm -hmm. uh, continue with the tomato metaphor um, that uh, just helps me, just encourages me, you know. It's a diverse set of, of writers, thinkers, yet it strikes me as there's something they share in common mm -hmm. yeah well they start sounding like they're 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 speaking the same language uh -huh. of course you know meister eckhart's german carvel of ravelli is italian um david Bohm is american um krishnamurti is from india um you know uh slavoj zizek is from eastern europe and you know so on and so forth uh but they're speaking the same kind of language of uh that seems to uh, be very close to what is true. And, and I include in that artists and musicians and, and, and some poets. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Last question on the deconstruction piece is to go back into your metaphor on the house. Yeah. The house, as you strip away its rooms and envision a wider open space, still retains its foundation is that akin to deconstruction? Is there a, a, a hidden or a foundation to retain within the process? Maybe sometimes. Mm -hmm. um, like for me, uh, uh, I know I'm uh, an anomaly wrapped inside an enigma for many people, but like I resist labels. Mm -hmm. When somebody presses me and says, are you a Christian? What I usually say is something like, "I'm a, I, my home is in Christianity, but I have cottages everywhere. My Christianity is definitely in my DNA. Uh, it's my family of origin, for sure. I've left home in some sense, but I, I uh, still consider it home. Um, there's a lot of things in Christianity and the church and the Bible and uh, theology and so on that I love. And, and uh, the church is my spiritual mother, for sure. I wouldn't be where I am now unless I was where I was then. Mm -hmm. um, it's made me, uh, it's been a part of my, you know, uh, chemistry growing up and, and becoming who I am. It's all been a part of the mm -hmm. compost, which is half soil and half shit, you know, but it all gets blended together. And I, out of that, I, I, that's who I become, right? It's half good, half bad, but it's uh, it's all a part of my story. So, mm -hmm. yeah, the, there's traces of foundation there. I'm sure people could 
pick apart my ideas and say, yeah, there's Christianity there, but he's really changed um, what the house looks like. And um, on top of that foundation, and I, I feel free to do that. And I think other people are starting to feel free to do that. Yeah. When freedom being the operative word in that sense is that it is, it is the, the chase of just that, of liberation, of the taste of, of freedom from all that yeah. seeks to make you less whole. Yeah, yeah. Freedom is a huge word for me. Yeah. When it comes to your illustrations, your panels, uh-huh. I detect the central a central theme, and correct me if I'm picking up um, the wrong theme here, but you, you deeply interrogate contemporary Christianity, specifically around the inclusion of the LGBTQ community. Yes. Is that by design? What is... Absolutely. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, um, like if I didn't care about the church, I wouldn't be drawing about it all the time. I even yeah. drew about the church today. Like it's, yeah. it, I do care. <clears throat> I've been a part of communities that have been inclusive and um, diverse, functional, and it's beautiful. It can't be beat. Nothing like it. And um, so I'm all for the church and uh, Christian community. I just wish it be done in a healthy manner more and more, you know? Uh, So that's why I, I talk about it all the time. And yes, the LGBTQ uh, community for me is I have friends and family who are of that number and I care uh, about their inclusion. I find it interesting that the church is willing to die on this Hill. It seems, but we've seen this before. I mean, I, I was in the Pentecostal church uh, in Canada when way back when um, you couldn't be in any kind of leadership if you were divorced and you couldn't be a a pastor if you were divorced. Well, they changed the rules when, you know, they were losing some good pastors because of that crazy. (laughs) Yeah. They had a vote 50% plus one. Um, Same with uh, even though um, Martin Luther King Jr claimed that uh, 11 o'clock on a Sunday morning is the most segregated hour in, you know, in America, you know, now uh, blacks and whites can worship together uh, and other color, uh, people of color and so on. Uh, It used to be women could not be ordained. Um, Now we're seeing more and more women being ordained. And it's just going to be the same with the LGBTQIA community. One day people are going to realize holy crap, we're losing a, whole bu- losing a whole bunch of members and money because people aren't putting up with our uh, discrimination anymore. Let's loosen the rules a little bit. And, uh, you know, we'll let them in and they can participate and, and so on. Um, and, uh, you know, I think necessity is going to demand change eventually. That's my hope. Uh, unless the church is willing to really die literally on that hill. Um, well, some will. Some it's, will. It's sad to me that money will be the catalyst to that. I think you're right. Yeah. 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 They won't say it's money. They'll say it's uh, people. But, um, you know, we're losing people. 
I mean, I don't want to be that cynical, but uh, you know, I really do hope that we're seeing we're seeing more and more churches trying to uh, understand. Um, more and more theologians uh, and writers are are writing about it, um, challenging the biblical texts that have been used. 1946, that movie, that documentary that just came out about uh, challenging the the verses that are often the clobber verses that are often used against the LGBTQIA community, um, undermining all that. So you know, I hope that very very soon. Um, more and more churches will be totally equal and democratic when it comes to that. Was this the catalyst of why you left the vineyard to turn mm-hmm. us full circle into now a shared story that we have? Was your chase for equity and equality the one that eventually pushed you out it was one of the issues and indirectly the whole issue i'm i'm a you know straight white cisgendered man but i know what it means to um be afraid to be myself spiritually uh however in the vineyard i found a, a home i i was actually I've already said I was in the Pentecostal church. I was in the Baptist church. I was in the United church. Uh, I had a Roman Catholic spiritual director. I was, in, I was baptized Anglican. I was ordained Presbyterian. Okay. Uh, well, and that's, that's uh, all and, things. <laughs> yeah. I'm my own ecumenical movement. Yeah. Um, and um, ended up in the vineyard church. And I, I felt really at home there. I loved it. Lisa and I loved it. My wife and I loved it from 95 on what was just wonderful we really really felt at home and i felt like found find finally found a place where i could just totally be me my authentic self and grow at my own pace and be who i wanted to be but around 2008 or 9 when i was going through some kind of profound personal spiritual transformation Mm -hmm. i talked about that already with the deconstruction Mm -hmm. and on that conference and then you know, uh, the workshop on deconstruction and hermeneutics, and then me having a profound epiphany kind of a thing on in 2009, it led up to me leaving the ministry in 2010, because we had a meeting um, with members of the church. And I realized I found the edge of the box. And I I knew I was Mm. no longer free, that um, people were wanting me to pull back, fall back in line. Uh, Some people thought that I'd lost my um, anointing, that God had lifted his hand off of me, a blessing, Mm. that I'd, um, my call or my ministry was gone, you know, all this kind of thing. And I just knew, you know what, if I want this church to survive, and if I want to survive, it's best for both of us if we go our separate ways. So that's what happened. And But a part of that whole thing was me knowing, like, there were same-sex couples coming to our church, um, um, gay men, lesbians coming and to our church. One Sunday, uh, a couple of women held hands. I knew, oh, no, here we go. 
it's one thing to say I'm okay with it, but it's another thing to see it uh, for a lot of people. And um, it just became, you know, became an issue. People like uh, a lesbian friend came and said, is it okay if I come to your church? I'm like, absolutely. I'd love you to. But there were rumblings going on and things were happening. And I knew the vineyard was starting to wrestle with it, knew it had to wrestle with it. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, I left the ministry in 2010. And then a few years ago, gee, how many years ago now? Three or four years ago now? they actually voted to not be affirming and right. it broke yep. my heart, it broke my heart. It's like, wow. Talk about a step backward. Wow. And I, I'm, I was like, yeah, I, I could see it coming and I'm glad I wasn't there anymore to be a part of that. Yeah. I think it was three years, three years, man. It was pre COVID. It was just before. Wow. The biggest news, that, that's right, it was 2020, so the decision perhaps was at the end of 2019, because the biggest news at that time in my life was supposed to be, and for the other ministry uh, colleagues of mine, was was that we were in protest and going to give up our licenses, which we did, over this, and that was it, and then of course COVID hit. But at the end of 2019, through a process that lasted the official quote-unquote, process lasted eight months, six months through 2019. Yeah. Traveling across the country yeah. to pull the electorate, as it were. But, you know, there there, there were th- theological issues, sure. But just as we consider uh, the this movement and what it might become across the contemporary church, yeah. a lot of me wonders if this was a money issue, too. Who are the well, biggest money churches? I mean, uh, I, I know people who are inside or were inside. And, you know, it was a political decision based on the economics and the demographics and, and so on. Uh, and this is my personal opinion. Uh, and I, I stick to it is that um, organizations and people pick the theologies that best suit their biases. Vineyard pastors and the vineyard church as a whole, in my opinion, uh, is discriminatory and um, chose a discriminatory um, hermeneutic, you know, and theology to uh, justify their decision. Well, it's, it's a justification of for the preservation of power. And it strike, struck me as, as, uh, as a power move. Yeah. So uh, I wasn't on the inside, although I knew people on the inside. And um, to me, it was very sad because I, (laughs) the vineyards always had a very special place in my heart. It gave me a home for 15 years. And uh, I made a lot of friends there and grew a lot. And um, I just felt it is very unfortunate. So you were, you were in a, you were in the vineyard ministry at that time? Yeah, I, I was. I held a my my pastoral credentials were there for a little while, and that was by relationship. I knew folks on the periphery. I didn't know, you know, I wasn't big enough to be in the middle of it. But the vineyard in Canada is quite small, and so yeah. once I did connect into uh, the national leaders and some of the more regional leaders, and was a little more intentional with that. One of the things that struck me was I forgot how white contemporary evangelicalism 
it. Because <laughs> I had just been operating outside in my own little multi-ethnic piece, you know, this tiny thing. And to come back into it was just, it was a little overwhelming. And, and yeah. that was part of the catalyst of not only are you going to marginalize and pull people out and push them out, but that, that was an indicator that they wouldn't be able to handle, and, and it came to head right away, but the movement wouldn't have been able to handle bigger questions surrounding white supremacy. And of course, that's going to put me on the outside, always, always. Yes. So yeah. it was an easy choice for me. And it's more performative because I didn't have so many um, relationships to lose there. There wasn't a lot of history for me that I was going to give up. But it was also very sad because I think one of the alluring or attractive pieces in the Vineyard Movement was this notion. Uh, they all hang on to it by they, I mean, uh, the, the old timers, hang on to the notion of everyone gets to play. And then suddenly put, they put a barrier to that. Yeah, and yeah. that was that's in, indicative of how you will treat everyone on the margins. I was out. Hey, I want to thank you very much for for this episode. I really value your your work. I love a lot of your. So you have your cartoons, but the way that you use negative space in in some of your paintings. Thank you. It's just very powerful. I, I, I'm always careful of pigeonholing artists into like, man, I see this as as your thing, but you may not have a thing. But those are the things that have struck. Oh no, me. I mean that it is a thing. I love space, right? We've already talked about it. My my watercolor paintings, I call that my contemplative expression mm -hmm. of my spirituality. My cartoons are my contentious. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, mm -hmm. challenging side of my <laughs> spirituality, but my watercolors really do reflect, I think my spiritual kind of leaning and that is space, openness, solitude, you know, quiet night, you know, things like that. So it, they are, they do mean that. So you do see that you're, you're correct. <laughs> mm -hmm.